What is the significance of saving wild places for current and future generations? Western Watersheds Project is on a mission to protect and restore Western watersheds and wildlife through education, public policy initiatives, and legal advocacy. Today, we're taking a specific look at one of my all-time favorite topics, the Mexican wolf. Hello, I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, and this is Down to Earth Tucson. And as many of you regular listeners know that I would be hard-pressed to find a topic that is nearer and dearer and more important to me than the plight of wolves in our country. Anyone who's been a part of my world for any significant amount of time knows that their protection is a passion of mine. Their treatment of them in some states defies description. And I mean that sincerely. It defies description what men can do to helpless little wolf pups. So it goes without saying that this show really and truly matters to me. So it is with great joy, and it's my honor to introduce our show guest, Greta Anderson, who is the Deputy Director, Western Watersheds Project. And Greta, thanks so much for being here, and I'm so happy I had a copy of Wolf Nation to share with you. It's kind of what got my passion started. It came to me in a way that was supposed to, and I read it, and I've changed lots of people's minds about wolves because of all the myths that are out there. So thanks for being here and fighting for the future of the wolves. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here today. It's going to be fun. So it's always good to start with a little bit of a blurb about your organization. I, I said what I think it does. Is there anything you wanted to add? I mean, it's pretty robust and it's, you know, you're like small but mighty. Yeah, that's definitely true. As my uh, boss likes to say, we punch above our weight. <laughs> So I love uh, that. I yeah. might make it a hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> We're primarily known for our work on public lands, livestock grazing, and trying to limit the impacts that cattle and sheep have on our public lands. So about 250 million acres of the West are um, publicly owned, but privately grazed. It's one of the biggest, um, it's the most ubiquitous land use in the West. And it's very destructive in a lot of ways, including the fact that the livestock industry was responsible for the first extermination of wolves in the lower 48 and is working really hard to advocate for the second extermination. Wolves were brought back into this country through reintroduction under the Endangered Species Act and the livestock industry would prefer to have the landscape sanitized and free of predators so that their profits increase. I mean, what a great note to land on is they want their profits increased. And this is what, is this fair to say, because this is the way I have translated it in my brain. So they want to use our land, us being taxpayers, public land, right? Yes. And they want their livestock to graze on it so they can make a lot of money, but they don't want the wolves on it because it'll imp impact their profit margin, their ROI. That's like not even an exaggeration at all. No, that's straight up how it is. And in fact, recently there was a person in New Mexico who was complaining that in order to protect her livestock, she had to camp out on the land and be there overnight with her cows who are calving in order to protect her livestock from wolves. And my question was, isn't that what cowboys are supposed to do? <laughs> Isn't that what they have those dogs that run around and protect them? And oh my gosh. Part of the issue oh. is that public lands are so 
vast and people want to be able to leave their livestock untended on public lands because the livestock have to wander so far to get enough forage to gain weight that they roam all over the place and the public lands ranchers don't want to have to keep track of them. So the easiest way to be sure that they're safe is to remove the quote-unquote threats, which happen to be native wildlife, native predators. That were there first. Of course. <laughs> that should have always been there in the first place. Yes. And to me, it's like when we're, I'm jumping ahead and I really had to talk to myself before the show to say, you better keep it in check, Gina, because you you got to keep it in check or it'll turn people off. But it's so audacious. So I can't think of enough words. Heinous to me that as a taxpayer, I'm supporting the cattle industry's profit margin. And I don't really care how hard it is to be a rancher. I don't. It's a choice and I respect them. And, you know, the call to action, one of them right here in the middle of the show, which I usually ask is eat less beef. The one place that you can get them is eat less beef. And boy, or no beef, which many, 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 many more of my friends are becoming vegetarian or vegan. And it's hard for me, but beef is just not in my repertoire, except very occasionally. And I go to the farmer's market where it is cost prohibitive. But if you only buy it once in a while, it's it's maybe it's okay. I don't know. But I know the rancher and she's pretty... It's her private land and she likes wolf, so it's okay. I feel like it's really good. So when you translate that, how does it impact the recovery of the Mexican wolf? And I was trying to think of sequencing for this so we will get to the value that wolves bring being a dominant species, essential species is really the right word, right? And tell me about what threat this poses for them, the Mexican wolves. Because the Mexican wolf was introduced under a specific provision of the Endangered Species Act, known as the 10J experimental population, part of the way that they do that is through a lot of social capitulation to the land users. And so with the Mexican wolf, for a long time and even now, the rules state that if there are quote-unquote problem wolves, they can be removed by the Um, Fish and Wildlife Service, which is the federal agency responsible for wolf reintroduction. And when ranchers have quote-unquote problems with wolves, they very often demand that the wolves are removed. In the case of Mexican wolves, there's only about 200 in the wild, and every one of those is critical. So when they're removed, either lethally or permanently into captivity, it affects the genetic diversity of the wild population in ways that imperils the genetic health and future of the species. So I'm not a deep diver for facts until I became Mrs. Green when I had to because I have very active listeners and they, I respect them, so I have to make sure what I'm saying is true. So this is a little bit older information from when I read Wolf Nation and Rick McIntyre's books and kept very current on it. Isn't it true that a teeny, tiny, almost insignificant amount of calf deaths are due to predation on the part of wolves. Isn't that true? They die from freezing. They die from starvation. They die from getting their um, hooves caught in cattle guards. And I mean, I read 
from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Report. I didn't read from some left-wing radical, oh, save the wolves publication. I went on their website and read their report, and predation is not the big deal at all. Am I right? That's absolutely true. And as I was mentioning, the cows range far and wide, and that's where they have their babies. They have their babies unprotected all over these public lands. And so these vulnerable calves are out being basically predator food. The calves die of all kinds of reasons. Sometimes cows die during childbirth. Sometimes it's freezing cold. We've seen reports of calves being born at 7,000 feet in January. It's really hard to imagine that all of those calves are, you know, healthy and and viable to begin with. But every time one dies, they blame it on wolves. And particularly in Arizona and New Mexico, they seem to have real difficulty distinguishing between a wolf kill and a wolf scavenge. So once there's a dead animal on the livestock, wolves will go ahead and eat it. Everything will go ahead and of eat it. Of course they will. Any wildlife, any wild animal out, with, if there's one down, they're going to have a feast. Absolutely. So a lot of times when Wildlife Services, which is another federal agency, goes out to look at wolf kills or what they you know, are investigating as wolf kills, if they find wolf tracks, if they find... Um, you know, wolf scat in the area, they automatically attribute it to Mexican wolves having killed the livestock. And we just dispute a lot of those confirmations because there isn't really evidence of wolf kills. There may be evidence of wolf scavenge. So I'm reading this book, right? It's all coming back to me now about wildlife services. I do hate saying those words because in the book Wolf Nation is when I first learned about them and were invited to try to find them in the federal budget. And I really do believe they are nefarious, dark side, nobody accountable to anybody and try to find them. So I'm glad you found them, but they... I don't see how they can be up to any good. That's all I can tell you. It's on the on the list of things that make me ultimately just devastatingly sad that there is a wildlife services never heard of. Nobody I ever, I said, do you ever hear of it? Do you ever hear of it? Do you ever hear of it? Nobody ever heard of it. Heard of it. So I love when I get to use the word nefarious. It just makes me feel so smart. <laughs> but anyway. We call them wildlife disservices. Thank you. Thank you. That's the truth spoken into word. And as a taxpayer, as someone who wants to be a good steward of our taxpayers' money, this is not a political issue. I want to know how my money is being spent. And I know it can't all be spent in alignment with what my values are, but at least can be above board, accountable, because we pay their salaries. At the end of the day, that's the damn truth. So I'd like to think of them as I'm their boss. (laughs) I'm sure they would really get a chuckle out of that. I think it would be good for you, if you can, to tell us why this fight, why this skin in the game. And I know the answer. I better know the answer because I say I'm a wolf whisperer. When you look at the the, the contribution of wolves in the restoration of Yellowstone, not just the reintroduction of the wolves, but the absolute observable, data-driven, measurable impact in that region and what happened. Why are wolves important in the Southwest? It's not Yellowstone, but it is Arizona and New Mexico. I'm not going to tell you how many hours I spent looking for wolves in the wild to no avail, but that's okay. So why, 
why this why does it matter so much? It's a good fight to be in. So the wolves in Yellowstone are a really interesting case study because what they found is that wolves actually changed the distribution of herbivores like deer and elk on the big landscape time. big time. And that had an effect on the recruitment of young trees. So deer and elk would browse down young trees and change the vegetation communities in Yellowstone. And they had different behavioral changes too because they weren't afraid of predators in the same way. So that changed the... Uh, vegetation communities, which then subsequently changed all of the wildlife communities that depend on vegetation, whether it was nesting birds or, uh, you know, insect communities, the shade of the trees and riparian areas changed the aquatic species distribution. And what they really found is keystone predators like the wolves affect ecosystems from the top down and they make it more healthy Um, across the board. So it's a key component of ecosystems and it's like, it's like a puzzle. And if you're missing a piece like wolves, you're never going to have a complete puzzle. In the Southwest, the reintroduction of wolves has been complicated by the fact that the dominant herbivore on public lands is livestock. And because wolves aren't allowed to eat or change the distribution of the livestock on public lands, their effect in a way, has been limited. They're still affecting native wildlife populations because their primary prey are native wildlife. But the ability to influence the ecosystem has been somewhat mitigated by the fact that, or or circumscribed or limited by the fact that livestock are still having a profound impact. Beautifully put. Like, and I didn't think about that part at all because in Yellowstone, which I have read about and studied and on and on, the erosion of the, the water stopped uh, on the banks of the water and you need predators to control populations. Looks what in New Jersey, I mean, there's, there's so, there are so many deer that they're a nuisance. They get killed. They're sick because there's too many of them. So this is called already ready for this big newsflash, the natural order of things. There are predators and they keep everything working according to nature, not according to man. And it's it's it doesn't take a rocket scientist to follow the food chain and the flow. So it's unbelievable. Now in the desert Southwest, I want to ask people listening because this is, this is something that I think could actually unite a lot of people because I have a really good friend of mine that was very pro shooting and killing the wolves. And I sent him the book and we've had many discussions about it. He's changed his mind. He's changed other people's minds that are hunters. Cause he said, well, I bet you're all against hunting. And I said, why would you say that to me? We have to have hunters. They provide so much good stuff for controlling the population and supporting wildlife preservation and all this stuff. I said, no, don't make that assumption because I'm Mrs. Green. But the whole thing about wolves is they, I love that you said keystone. They're a keystone species. So to have them in place um, is you know, essential. And what I was going to say, I kind of lost my train of thought because it's so emotional to me. But if if you drive up like around the northern part of our state where there's more grazing and more open lands, you can see which side of the fence the cattle were on because one is lush and has bushes and flowers and the other one, 
there's such degradation. You're like, oh, how can they find even a scrap? And it's going to be interesting as the climate crisis continues and and becomes more severe, how that's going to impact all of it. So, On public lands as well, like the general rule is that 50% of all forage production is allocated to livestock. And a cow and her calf consume about the same amount of vegetation as two elk, seven deer, and 11 pronghorn. And that's a statistic from the New Mexico Department of Fish and Game. So if you look at every cow out there and you imagine, well, that could be seven deer or that could be two elk, you can usually persuade the hunters that their interests are not uh, being affected by the wolves as much as their interests are being affected by the livestock industry. And thank you so much for bringing that up because as much as I sound like this radical, which I am when it comes to wolves, it is a place to find common ground because most hunters that I know, they care deeply. They, I don't know a lot of ranchers, I admit that, but the hunters, they want to be able to hunt their elk and their deer and their quail and their antelope. They, That's something that gives them pleasure. A lot of times it's a family tradition. A lot of times it's for food. So it is self-preservation when it comes to protecting this keystone species. That's the word I was looking for and I said essential species. So what... Do you think it's important to say to the audience for thinking and and processing all of this, it's not just important here in Arizona. There's something, there's another wolf back east that I'm not following as closely, but isn't it important as a country that we do this for our not healing, but regeneration and restoration of natural lands? We all win. I mean, am I so blind that I'm like missing a big point here? No, it's absolutely true. And particularly with climate change, as our ecosystems get increasingly stressed, using natural tools like wolves that bring the ecosystems back into balance is going to be a key piece of, you know, restoring all public lands. President Biden has an agenda called 30 by 30, which is to protect 30% of the lands by 2030. And we're not going to get there unless we make radical changes in what we mean for conservation. And part of that is going to be the reintroduction of native predators or allowing native predator populations to expand where they are already and limiting the degradation and disturbance uses of public lands like livestock grazing, oil and gas development, recreational um, vehicle use that's unmanaged, all kinds of things that degrade the landscape. That's going to have to change. I saw some of the ATVs out recently. I was in nature. And I know there are paths where it's approved, and that's great. But if they're going off-roading, it talk about degradation. And they are there for the thrill of the ride, for the most part. I mean, I'm kind of stereotyping, but they love that thrill of the ride. And I think good for you if you're on a path that has been approved, that's going to cause a minimal amount of degradation, go for it. Be outside. Do it. But it's very important to me that that part of it, because you you think about what the ranchers are doing, and then you couple that with those people, and then climate change. As a citizen of the planet, I get really concerned, like really, really concerned. Do you have wins I I hate to ask you that, but you're fighting for these things. Is it mostly fought in courts? Is it mediation? Is it 
you present the facts and I don't want to ask you if the Forest Service is your friend. I don't. I don't want to go there. But are you making progress in some of these battles? Because it just makes common sense to me. I have these conversations with people all the time. This is not a political issue to me at all. It's a self-preservation issue because I want my granddaughter to be able to see those wild places. So is, is your organization, is Western Watersheds Project making some headway? Is it harder? Is it more onerous? Where are you in terms of winning some of the battles? Does that make sense? Yeah, a friend said this really eloquently yesterday, and I've, I've heard it before, but he said, we have to win every time, and the bad guys only have to win once. And I thought, you know, that's really true, because I've been Awful. doing this work for long enough that I'm in the same battles that I have been in for almost 20 years. We fight once, the agencies come back with a new revised bad plan. We fight again. They come back with a new revised bad plan, and then we're still fighting. It's really, sometimes it's really depressing to to realize that. But on the other hand, we do win a lot. And we win because the agencies are doing something illegal. And, you know, people talk about litigious environmentalists, but if the agencies weren't breaking the law, we wouldn't be winning in the court. Exactly. And we would prefer not to litigate. We'd prefer the agencies did the right thing in the first place. We do win. We, uh, we Sometimes we have small wins that aren't recognized because they're, you know, maybe not media worthy. Um, one of my colleagues just got a win in western Arizona in the western deserts where she got the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, the land managers to admit that livestock grazing was not and probably had never been appropriate for this area. And that's a big deal because it means livestock won't be reauthorized in this area that's true desert, really true desert. Um, Saguaros, yucca, uh, agaves. Not a lot of good cattle food. No. Give no, me a break. Mysterious. Well, what they do out there because there isn't good cattle food is they wait for a good year. And when there's a lot of rains, you know, that beautiful desert bloom that everybody loves to come see all the wildflowers spring up. Well, the livestock industry looks at that and says, cow feed. (laughs) Breakfast, (laughs) lunch, and dinner. And it's only $1.35 per cow per month. So it's a screaming deal to eat all those wildflowers and that's what they do. So where there isn't cow feed, they do this thing called ephemeral grazing. What's unfortunate is that the wildlife depend on those boom years too. Things like the Sonoran Desert tortoise really depend on those forbs and grasses that come up when there's desert rains. I want to do my pitch for like me personally. It's a big time of transition for me and my husband. I'm very transparent on the air. My husband's had a lot of health issues. I work too much because I am passion driven and it's been the pattern of my life. And I was coming back from New Mexico two days ago and I was very sad because I was leaving my granddaughter. My husband was staying there. I had to come back for work. So I went through the Bosque del Apache Wildlife Refuge. If you like the Gina who went in there and the Gina who came out was transformative. I went in, 
sad and uptight and resentful and maybe even a little angry. Like, why do I have to be the one to go home? And I came out of there filled with joy and gratitude and calm. And it was funny because I went by myself, which I love having my husband with me because he's a wildlife geek like I am. And I, it was about, I don't know, seven o'clock. And I thought, hmm, I can go around the loops again. And I did it. I did it twice. And I saw more things. I saw a skunk and I saw two pheasants and I saw a javelina. And so it was like, wow. So nature is one of the best counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, healers that you could ever turn to. I felt it. I was transformed. So that's what I don't want degraded. Absolutely. And, you know, you think about it and we're animals. We're animals that belong in nature. And when we go out there, we feel at home. It makes real sense. Oh my gosh, I do. I love it. It's a very much a healing place. So in the bigger picture, and I'm glad to hear you have some victories and I just have to throw in and I wish this podcast would go viral, but I just read yesterday that they're going ahead with Rosemont Copper, which for anybody in this area, it's so raw to me and upsetting. And they said it from the beginning that I've been in this for 15 years and they said, oh, we're going to get it. It's just a matter of when, not if. And they did. They're starting. They're starting. Do you think it'll get stopped? I do, because actually a recent Please, court Greta, order... Please, tell me. No, it's true. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals just affirmed a lower court decision that said that they couldn't do the mine. And the thing you read yesterday was about the mining company going ahead anyway. So they're operating illegally and uh, uh, out of line with the court's decision. So I think that they'll be stopped this time. But we have to keep fighting. If that doesn't get people. You know, my mother had this expression, if that doesn't jar your preserves, because don't we want the courts to mean something? Even if we don't agree with it, like, I mean, it's got to mean something. That's another trajectory we don't want to do. But let's, let's kind of go big picture here, because my personal experiences are everything. That's why I'm Mrs. Green. In Denver, They don't have wild spaces, but they have a lot of green spaces. Mm -hmm. Every community in Denver, it's one of my favorite places to go. We have family there and there's walkways and there's water features and there's green and there's deer and there's pass and there's ducks and there's herons. In terms of the wild spaces, this is more even about that too, like having wild spaces, not just places for wolves to graze where there's cattle, but as a nation, protecting our wild spaces for all the right reasons. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. And protecting our wild spaces also serves us in other ways. I mean, healthy landscapes, that's where our water comes from. It rains down, it filters through. This is what watersheds are all about. If you can protect the land, you're protecting the water. Um, You know, native plants do a lot of work for our atmosphere and our air. They help clean our air. We've got to protect it for our own purposes, too. It can be very selfish. I interviewed Katie Gannon yesterday from Tucson Clean and Beautiful and the A Million Trees Initiative, and that podcast isn't out yet. But when I was asked to go to this think tank thing at the university, 
and we, our group had to come up with one thing we could do to move the planet forward, there was not a hesitation in my mind. It was like plant trees, plant trees, plant trees. It helps with erosion. It helps with the canopy. It helps with cooling. Mm-hmm. We need cooling here in the good old Southwest mm-hmm. because it's hot as hell. So there's just that part of it, like you said, Trees contribute to our quality of life in ways that most of us don't think about. I don't think about it every day, trust me, but they're habitat for birds. Who doesn't love birds? If you don't love birds, please don't call me. But there's so many pieces of this that are, it can be a very selfish thing in a good way where you say, I want nature. Like sometimes when I'm in that state, I just get in the car and go out and drive through Saguaro Monument, which is, you can't, you cannot stay in a bad mood when you're at Saguaro National Monument because you're surrounded by beauty and ground squirrels. And if you're lucky, you'll see some deer and the saguaro are starting to bloom. And it's wonderful. And like the erosion factor here, if you build a little well around your tree, you're helping the entire watershed, right? There's so many things that we can do. So um, time has flown. <laughs> we are like at a half hour, which doesn't even matter to me. But is there anything else that we should have covered, that we should have brought up. I think the biggest thing for me is what would you recommend having done this for 20 years? We've got a great tribe at Mrs. Green's World and people do things and they get out and they sign petitions and they show up at rallies. For the listener that's saying, well, I wish Greta would tell us one thing we could do. What can we do? Well, pay attention. Oh, yes, I love that answer. Just pay attention. Pay attention to what's happening. I mean, the... A lot of organizations will send out regular opportunities for advocacy where you're, you know, write a letter to your elected officials or write a letter to the agency. Those things matter. The other thing that matters is supporting nonprofit organizations that will take these fights to court because a lot of the wins are legal battles. And so it's important to recognize that these nonprofits really rely on their members to help support them and support the work that gets us into court. So yeah, pay attention and advocate for the things you care about. It's really important. Wolves are very popular, but you know, some people might really care about a bat or really care about a certain plant and take that passion to make the world a better place by improving the habitat and persistence of that species. It's a great answer. It's really a great answer. And of course, everybody, their website will be on the pages in the show notes, but it's westernwatersheds.org, very easy to find. And I encourage everybody to read more about it. It was delightful that I learned about it and really went down the rabbit hole to see all the work you're doing. Because like I've interviewed Natural Resources Defense Council. They're playing on a big field. I'll never forget the time I found out, like when I started this journey about fracking, and I did. I took three days off of work. I didn't do anything for three days because I was so physically, shocked. emotionally, yeah. and spiritually invaded. When this woman, she just she was the executive director. I think it was NRDC. I have to remember. It was like fifteen years ago, twelve years ago. I couldn't handle the truth of what she described that happens to Mother Earth in the fracking process. So this is a. Um, just a labor of love for me. And I'm so glad our paths crossed and that we had a spot for you on the show. Tucson Medical Center made this possible because of their sponsorship of our work. So I appreciate them, locally owned. And um, I guess my final thought is, I don't think a lot of people that disagree with me listen to this show, 
right? I don't. But if you do, I hope you'll open your mind and listen and realize that from my heart, I'm saying it is not a political issue. It's not lefty Lucy. It's planet humanitarian party stuff that I'm talking about. And to, if you love the podcast as much as I've loved doing it, ask someone that might not be as excited about this topic to just have a listen and reach out and learn more and maybe grow because it is the one area that I can actually say I changed someone's mind. I really did. And he still is a good friend. He works for Bosch and he has stayed in my life in a very weird way. He's moved back to Utah, but we would go and sit down. He's very Republican, conservative, um, very Democrat, progressive. And we found a lot of common ground and had this joke about going on the tour, you know, the tall white guy with the short little old lady and trying to get people to find some common ground because we'll never get from here to there without some healing. So thank you for your work and for your commitment. And it's an honor to spend time with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. 